0: Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand.
1: And I'm Michael Beirut. The
0: Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air.
1: So this is our um, first episode of 2016. And uh, the beginning of the year might be uh, a moment where we could talk about the state of data visualization and the creation of infographics. I noticed with all the other 10 best lists and best of the year lists that came out for 2015, a number of different publications and online sites came out with things like chart of the year, the weirdest infographics of the year. It just seems like this um, art, the science of Making information visible in a graphical way, which not that long ago was considered a fairly esoteric and even boring sort of thing, now is really viewed as uh, uh, something of widespread interest and worthy of comment.
0: I think there's a really simple explanation for why this is. I think this is the visual equivalent of short attention span theater. (laughs) And that it's a very quick way for people to get to the heart of something when they don't have a lot of time. Uh, Graphs can be simple, they can be small, they work well in mobile, uh, and increasingly they're becoming interactive. So if you want to know how many people in South Dakota are reading your blog on a Tuesday at four o'clock, you can zero in on that data. But you know, the thing is, With the speed with which we want to transmit this information to the world, it's so easy to get this stuff wrong. And I think increasingly the the second wave of this, after all this popularity and and best-of lists and visual listicles, is that people are going to start really kind of peeling back the layers and finding things that are incorrect. It's very easy to transmit incorrect information swiftly and visually.
1: Um, On the other hand, I find these things have this uh, uh, weird and compelling authority to them that I'm as susceptible... To as, as anyone would be. I mean, I see a, uh, uh, in my Twitter feed, something will come up with, it'll say something like, uh, here's the uh, conflict in Syria explained in a single chart, you know, and I'm like, yeah, this is what I've been waiting for. There seems to be, it's, it's, it's like complex, it's borderline incomprehensible. But don't you
0: think that's that some of them, I mean, maybe, maybe I don't know enough about uh, the actual formal language of the chart to know what works best for these things, but don't you find them to be not that inspiring a lot of the time? Like... You know, there's only so many things you can do with a circle and a square and a pie chart and a bar chart and an X, Y axis. I mean, it just, you know, I'm surprised. I was surprised, actually, when I looked at some of those lists you mentioned a moment ago, Michael, you know, the chart of the year on courts or uh, the economist did theirs as an advent calendar, thus making it more interesting and participatory because you had to open each day. And, of course, each day revealed a new infographic. But I was surprised that they weren't more inspired.
1: It all goes back to uh, the writing of Edward Tufte, who, who published, as most of our listeners know, a series of books that really explained the real utility of visualizing information in a way that was compelling and imaginative and clarifying. And for years, these would be the books that i would see to my surprise in the most unlikely places i could be visiting my accountant or a client who is in financial services or another client who would be at a law firm they wouldn't have books by paul rand they wouldn't have books by stefan sagmeister they wouldn't have books by marian banshees but they would have on their shelves a couple of books by ed tufte and those are real design books he's a hero the whole thing yeah
0: and you know Yeah, he's here as a statistician. You know, he's a Yale guy. He was here for many years doing what he did. And uh, he actually married a graphic designer who may be the woman behind the man who made this all clear. You know, it's interesting. He's married to uh, Inga Druckery, who's a very well-known, important figure uh, who came from the Basel uh, Kunstgewerbe school and really taught the theory and practice of understanding how to draw and see and look and understand things like grids and structures. And in any event, he, uh, as you say, published these books and, and, and did extremely well with them. They, they were published in many languages, many uh, multiple editions. Um, but even those, I mean, what he did well in his books is he, he brought in the historical element. So he talks about, you know, Florence Nightingale's amazing chart of the Crimean War. Uh, that was a, a, one of the first charts to show uh, in no uncertain terms that more men were being killed uh, as a result of poor health care in the camps, than as a result of gunfire. And this was not information that the government wanted to hear at that time. And here, a chart was actually an effective tool in public health and the dissemination of information in public health. But I think to bring it back to the current day, um, uh, the, the, the kinds of charts that I find myself swooning over, Michael, are the ones that are uh, visually, I think, a little bit uh, nuanced, not so much against the graphic evidence, but against the time and dimension space. So, for example, uh, the Sensible City Lab, which is spelled like Sense, S E N S E, right? Sensible City Lab at MIT. Mm, for, yeah, MIT, uh, yeah, Got yeah, a yeah. challenge a little while ago from the Coca Cola company to look at terabytes of data uh, against uh, m- more simpler information like brand loyalty and the proportions of people who are using their product. And they made this. Uh, unbelievably beautiful information graphic called Drinking Data, uh, and why is it beautiful? It's beautiful because there's typography in it that interrupts the flow of the charts. It tells you what you're looking at. It moves in and out of space. It's really simple. It's rendered in three in in red and black and white, uh, your favorite colors, Michael. Um, so you know, and it's and it's a to, it's a total chart of something that is information rich, image heavy. Uh, image in the sense of graphical reproduction of form that tells you what you're looking. I think it is just so elegant as opposed to these things that are just, you know, here's the X, Y axis of, you know, why a Q-tip will save the world. I just think a lot of these best of charts, I'm not really sure what the criteria are that are judging.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of them are put together as hastily And as um, opportunistically as a a typical Internet listicle, you know, they're just like someone will throw something together and say, here's four charts that explain, you know, what's happening in the GOP primary race, you know, and it'll just be, you know, just someone will crunch some, a little bit of data, put together some things and say, here we go, this is it, you know. And I think the result just doesn't have any of that kind of thoughtfulness and richness that you're, uh, that you're describing. And that indeed is, can be brought to bear on something like uh, soft drink consumption. It doesn't have to be a big issue or the Crimean War. It can be anything and it can still sort of really be revelation if it's done right.
0: Well, I think the thing is that you have to remember it, right? And I think what's increasingly happening to come back to this animation idea is that if we agree that pictures speak louder than words, moving pictures really speak louder than words. Uh, because they captivate our attention and we become just, uh, I think, mesmerized by the fact that not only are we looking at something, but we're looking at something that's dancing around the screen. Uh, and that's a tricky territory because it can be done well or badly, of course. Uh, there's a, Do you know about this uh, Numbers gumball video? No, no. Is this, has this crossed your feed yet? So th- this was drawn to my attention recently. There's a guy named Roy Beck. Uh, who's a, a seasoned journalist, uh, uh, He's a wonderful, long um, uh, provenance as a as a person who asks serious questions as a as a writer. Uh, and at the core of his interests in the world is immigration, particularly coming up on this election when the question of uh, immigrants in the United States is a big, big question for uh, voters. Beckett's made this uh, video. Uh, to put arguments into practical perspective and to allow uh, people to understand uh, that we may be hurting the impoverished people of the world because the million that we do take care of are the most energetic and better educated and most dissatisfied people who, if they did not immigrate, would be agents for change to improve the lot of the people in their impoverished countries.
1: To go back for a second to uh, you mentioned. Quartz has this uh, chart of the year they've unveiled, which is actually really uh, an interesting and surprising one by an economist from Oxford making the point that, over time, the proportion of people living in poverty keeps dropping and dropping. You sort of see your own frame, you know, am I making more money than last year or not? But it's sort of when you sort of see it, not just uh, the past 12 months, but the past two centuries, and not just me and my friends and my neighborhood and my city and my state and my country, but the whole world, um, the trend is actually uh, kind of remarkable and remarkably positive. Uh, one of the things that I think is sort of telling is that um, on Quartz's site, chart of the year is not just chart of the year, but it's chart of the year T. Um, meaning that they intend to kind of own the idea of designating the chart of the year. So um, at least the uh, folks at the Atlantic and the um, the business wing of that enterprise at Quartz has determined that uh, naming chart of the year is going to have some value in and of itself, which is making some point, I think, about people's ongoing fascination with infographics and uh, data visualization.
0: Uh, yeah, and I think that... Uh people, again, have a short attention span. So here's the quartz chart rolling everything into one and bringing it down to to you. I mean, at the end of the day, the other things that these things uh, make patently clear is that they make them very pertinent to you. And you need to find yourself in that chart. You need to locate and calibrate and figure out your coordinates against the trajectory of the world. Otherwise, you can't relate to it. I think maybe that's one of the reasons why, to me, Uh, the charts that move and are interactive do that even better because they entertain you and they actually... I mean, I've always been a great believer in the idea that the the value of that which is interactive is that you are physically participating in the information that is being uh, put out to you, and so thereby you have to derive a greater sense of reward or memory of that experience as a result. And so the capacity for learning and retention of that knowledge...
1: Seems to be greater, and you know, um, in uh, the the rundown that Five Thirty Eight did of their weirdest uh, charts of the year, uh, one of them is just uh, the superimposition of the relative scale of every painting at MoMA, and it. Is you know, it doesn't tell you anything you sort of don't already know that you know most of the paintings are kind of like these rectangular things that are about yay big, but there's just something it's just, kind of a beautiful chart, actually, isn't it? Yeah, it was, I think it's a gorgeous chart, and then like you know, yay for the water lilies, you know, just, <laughs> it's so you know, funny, beat the kick the crap out of all those other paintings, you know, Gomine, you know.
0: This is the other point I wanted to make about these things is that graphic designers or designers in general tend to think this is their. Belywick. This is a place they can isolate their skills to make sense of a world that needs to have a graphic representation that comes across swiftly. Fair enough. I believe that that is, in fact, what we are equipped to do. We think visually. We're good communicators. We're good translators of information. But, and here's the but, we need scientists to help us understand what this big data is. We need economists to help us read the implications for this data. And and this is a real, uh, I think, shout out to the fact that education... Uh, has to change to reflect the kinds of sources and resources our students are going to need to make sense of this world and continue to make charts and graphs that are not only accessible and meaningful, but but they actually function independently in worlds other than the the design world. So the disconnect for me is that design education, which is often stalled in art education, uh, doesn't necessarily make uh, it possible or easy or actionable for students of design to understand that the capacities they need to develop to make these kinds of charts over time will need to be equipped with skill sets other than their own. And so the good news is, is I think the more we start to think about education, not as a series of siloed disciplines, but in terms of team teaching, in terms of collaborations between schools and between departments, the better our students are going to be in terms of being equipped to make charts that really resonate beyond their own very, I think, limited purview, which is not their fault. It's the nature of the way we teach design, which is to teach it in an art school.
1: i um, speaking, Jessica, of um, charts and diagrams and their entertainment value and their capacity for aesthetic beauty. Um, You've uh, taken your collection of circular charts, Vovelles, and uh, made a uh, product line out of them. How's that been going?
0: Well, you know, people who know me and that I tend to be a kind of serious sort of person as a writer may be surprised that I'm actually having the time of my life goofing around with these volvelles and turning them into clocks. Um, Partly it's because I was raised by a collector father who was a very generous person with sharing... Uh, his The things he owned and found and, uh, you know, he exhibited and he wrote books and articles. And I think it just gives me great joy to be able to share them, quite frankly. Uh, they're beautiful. They're varied. They're bizarre. They're eclectic. They tell information stories of all kinds from, you know, how much time you have to get out of a building after a nuclear blast to the best way to make a clam bake mousse, Um And, you know, everything in between. Um, And, in fact, what you can do with a high-res scan on a product these days is pretty remarkable. So I can't take the credit for the production or the fulfillment. Uh, Part of the joy in making them is that I don't have to worry about the production or the fulfillment, and I can just worry about putting these things on other products. And so these clocks, there are now quite a few of them, um, are available through Society6, and we have a link on our site, and we'll keep adding them over time, and we hope people find them as as, um, interesting and compelling
1: as we do and um do you know what the best selling one is
0: uh, I think we're doing pretty well on that radiation detector. Although I have a feeling that there, there are many that were for recipes and menus of things. Um, they seem to be having their having a little mainstay uh, hold out there uh, because of course people often hang clocks in their kitchens. Uh, and then another category that we're starting to see um, getting a little bit more play is maps. There's some amazing maps. Uh, there's a European chart from 1932 that has a Zeppelin.
1: Yeah, I, I, I bought that one for Dorothy actually. Well, thank you know, you. For Christmas, yeah. <laughs> (laughs) We thank you. Thank you for your support. And she loved him. So that same collector
0: father uh, amassed over his lifetime, uh, he's still amassing, uh, a really remarkable collection of medical uh, ephemera, pharmaceutical labels, uh, ephemera from... Tins and advertising and uh, posters, and uh, a number of things that are really documents of social history of medicine and pharmacy, and in some cases, propaganda and persuasion. Uh, Typographically, they're remarkably beautiful. And so, we have launched a new collection uh, on Redbubble called the Medical Archive, which uh, are taken from this really spectacular group of labels, which he, being a pretty fastidious collector, kept. Uh, in books, in plastic all these years, and so the colors have not faded, and uh, we are benefiting from uh, his fastidiousness as a collector and scanning them and uploading them on this other site uh, called the Medical Archive. So we'll put a link to that, too, on our site. So, Michael, we've been talking a lot today about the state of data visualizations that you, the listener, can't see, which is kind of strange when you think about it. But there are many ways to get the point across. And in December, amid uh, the publication of all of the charts we've been discussing, the movie *The Big Short* tried to explain the 2008 uh, financial crisis in some pretty unorthodox ways.
1: Um, yeah, and I thought this was really a um, turning point for uh, the ways we think about explaining complicated information. I'm re—I've really become accustomed to um, the trope, even the cliche of, you know, it's hard to explain what the subprime mortgage crisis looked like, but here's like a, an animated chart. If you imagine that each one of these dots is a house and each one of these circles is a thing and then this builds up to that but watch what happens here on one hand it's um you know it's admirable to try to make these animated charts and things but it's not meeting people i think where they actually are in their own minds what's really interesting about the uh, uh the movie the big short which is really about um uh, based on michael lewis's uh nonfiction account of some guys who more or less bet Against the American economy prior to the financial collapse, and ended up profiting from what they correctly perceived was the greed and uh, uh, short sightedness of almost every large financial institution in the United States and perhaps the world. In that movie, um, they sort of like anticipate exactly when you're going to find something boring, when you're going to find something incomprehensible, when you find something likely, and then they will, um, you know, do what's called breaking the, uh, uh, the fourth wall and will, you know, someone, one of the characters uh, uh, will directly address the viewer and say, this is a little bit boring, so let's explain it to you this way.
0: Ryan Gosling, who's sort of the narrator, uh, will cut away and say, now to explain to you how a subprime mortgage really works, Margot Robbie. And Margot Robbie's beautiful actress appears in a bubble bath sipping champagne to explain what a subprime mortgage is. Uh, The other examples, Selena Gomez at a blackjack table paired with a a noted economist and Anthony Bourdain in the kitchen making fish and showing you a vat of day-old fish and three-day-old fish and how a stew is made of something that's good and less good. I found those fascinating and more acceptable in the context of what is a very funny thing, right? Take an expert in another field, make a metaphorical representation of how this works as a card game, as a as a stew. The, the Margot Robbie example is just a gorgeous woman in a bubble bath with champagne. There is no other example. And that one is the one that fell a little flat to me. It seems too obvious. And she's really beautiful. She's really beautiful. There's no question. I'm not disputing her beauty. But, you know, one could even argue that she's so beautiful that you're not listening at all to the description of the subprime mortgage. You're just looking at how beautiful she is. I
1: I think in a way to use that as the first one and to establish what a lot of people still, to my surprise, find to be a really disorienting moment in films. People, I I I I've spoken to friends and relatives who will say, "Oh, I thought it was really weird when Ryan Gosling would talk right to the camera." You know, is you know, I mean, that's been going on in theater and film for. Like decades and decades and decades. It was not exactly a newly invented thing, but people going to see what they are expecting to be a conventional caper movie or whatever they had in mind with, you know, Brad Pitt and Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell at all in the uh, credits, you know, I think just find it really weird when this uh, sort of uh, Brechtian commenting on the actual uh, plot starts happening right in the middle of the thing. And I think by introducing it just with something as preposterous as, a beautiful woman in a bathtub explaining something that otherwise you will find horribly boring is, it was I think, was meant to just sort of establish that that was going to happen later on. I think had they started with Anthony Bourdain, the, sort of that would actually made more sense, but actually seen be less kind of audaciously preposterous as a way to establish that as a thing they're going to do all the way through. What I really loved about the movie, though, uh, in terms of lessons for... People doing, um, you know, trying to explain complicated things is it, it both acknowledged exactly what it's like not to know this stuff sort of made it okay not to know that stuff. One of the things they say is the reason that you don't understand it is that the banks didn't want you to understand it. And by sort of uh, explaining it in ways that's sort of a down to earth and, and frankly, entertaining, uh, I think there are lessons for people who um, are earnestly doing these charts that are neither deep and profound, like some of the examples you have mentioned, Jessica, but nor are they audacious and entertaining by making these great metaphoric leaps. They're just sort of lightweight, empty calories. And I think there's something just terrific about, uh, um, you know, coming down really hard on one side as they do in that movie.
0: Right. And it would be nice to think, actually, at the end of the day, that it's not the visual resonance that makes us remember something, or even the clarity of the explanation but that the lesson, the cautionary tale at the core of the narrative, which is sort of moral hazard, right? And w- which really you could liken it to if you saw Spotlight, it's a similar story. I mean, the, the thing that you take away, at the end of the day, everybody leaving the theater has one thing in common, which is that they're sentient beings, right? We are we're moral people at the center of all this, one would hope. And, and I think that that's the thing. Is Really, the big, the big question for me is, What's the thing that reaches people to make them realize what it is to do the right thing? Where's the conscience, whether it's gumballs or charts, or if it's women in bubble baths sipping champagne, you know, what's it going to take? because at the end of the day that really is both of those films for me and and even and all, every film i've seen lately joy in a way is that is about that too right it's like all of them tell the story in a different way they're all of course different stories with different characters and different trajectories of of time and space and meaning but at the end of the day it's like what is it to do the right thing and when you to come to come back to the Big Short, I mean that that you know what, what what pulsates through that entire film, is the look on Steve Carell's face, and you just you know that this guy is just really struggling to understand some deeper emotional truth
1: the observatory is a podcast from design observer our website is designobserver.com you can find links there to the things we discussed today including different accounts of last year and charts we'll also point you toward design observers penmanship and bobello collections between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of this show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time.
0: You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash That's designobserver.com slash And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskett. Happy New Year, Michael. Talk to you soon.
1: Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon.